Today's scripture reading is taken from 2 Samuel 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them and Hebron at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphilet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim. And there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Will you pray with me? 
Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel this morning, our prayer is that we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. Amen. There are few subjects that seem to be more of a challenge to Christians than the subject of guidance. We all want to understand, how can we know God's will? Most of us don't share the experience of great Old Testament figures like David, who are told their destiny by a prophet. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel comes to an unknown family in a small town, and under the direction of God, picks out the eighth and youngest son, who is so little regarded by his own family that he hasn't even been invited in from the fields where he's tending the sheep. And the prophet anoints him as the next king of Israel. So David has a pretty good idea from his youth about where things are headed for him. At times, he must have been confident that this was all coming to pass uh, when he defeated Goliath, uh, when he was called up to serve in King Saul's household, when he became the successful general of Israel's armies. But at other times, his faith in this guidance was surely shaken by the constant threat to his life as King Saul's jealousy of him grew, even to the point, as we saw, where David abandoned Israel and joined forces with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. But of course, most of us don't have prophets to guide us. And the big decisions that we face don't involve whether or not we'll be king of Israel. But we do all face important decisions on a regular basis. How do we make these decisions in ways that are faithful to God? The passage that we read this morning offers three answers to this question, three of the most significant answers that Christians have given to this challenge of knowing and doing God's will, taking action, confident that we're in step with the Lord. So far in our sermon series from Samuel, we've been looking at David's rise to the throne. Uh, Today, we're picking up from the point where he's made king over Israel and moving from David's rise to David's rule. The Bible gives more pages over to describing events in David's life than it does to any other person. His life, and particularly his interactions with God, give us a window into how the Lord works in our own lives. We mustn't forget that he lived more than 3,000 years ago in a very different cultural context from our own. But that very thing points us to the unchangeable nature of God's faithful ways with men and women. The chapter we've read marks a high point in David's life, and many years have passed since the Lord promised that he would one day become king. Here is the fulfillment of that promise. David's been king of Judah for some seven and a half years by this point. Uh, Judah is the dominant tribe in the southern part of the land. But the northern tribes have been at war with David, taking Saul's son Ishbosheth as their king. Uh, You can read about the account of the civil war in 2 Samuel chapters 2, 3, and 4. Ishbosheth's death marks the end of that conflict, and the elders of Israel at last come to David 
as they should have done seven and a half years earlier, and they invite him to rule them all. So this fifth chapter is the account of the establishment of David on the throne of the whole nation, king over Judah and Israel. So we read in verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Then we're told in verse 11, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. From verse 9 to verse 13, the writer of the book of Samuel gives us a brief glimpse of certain future events in David's reign. He takes up residence in what will become known as the city of David. He builds up the surrounding area. He becomes more and more powerful. A palace is built for him. He takes concubines and wives and has many more children. These are things that happen over the course of many years. The point is that the establishment of his home and the establishment of his family line are evidence of the establishment of his throne. And right at the beginning of David's rule, that's what the writer of Samuel wants us to know. But it's worth noticing that even here, Even in this declaration of the establishment of his rule, the writer of 2 Samuel gives us an honest picture of David. These multiple wives and concubines, something that was forbidden in the law, but permitted by the people because it it fulfilled the expectations of what a king should be like. This is how kings in other nations behaved. These multiple wives and concubines, and particularly some of their children, would eventually undermine David's rule. And the point that verse 12 makes will become clear, that it is the Lord who establishes David as king over Israel, not behavior like that of other foreign rulers. That then is the main point of this chapter, to demonstrate David's establishment as king. And David takes four actions in the chapter which establish his rule. He makes a covenant with the elders of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem. And twice he defeats the Philistines in battle. David takes each of these actions in a way that is consistent with God's will. That's why they establish his rule. So what I want to do is take a look at each of them. And I hope that it will become clear how these events demonstrate three specific ways in which we can discern and act in line with God's will. The three ways that are illustrated in this chapter are sanctified consideration, spiritual confirmation, and specific command. Sanctified consideration, spiritual confirmation, and specific command. So first, sanctified consideration. Most of our decision-making as uh, followers of the Lord falls into this category. God is a God of reason. He gave us intellect, rationality, brains for a purpose. But like our emotions, our thoughts can be focused on ourselves rather than on serving God and serving others. 
So it's not simply logic we're talking about here. Rather, it is sanctified or godly thought, consideration shaped by a godly view of the world. The New Testament calls this having the mind of Christ, a a Christ-saturated thought life. David does two things arising from his sanctified consideration. First, he makes a covenant with the elders of Israel. When the leaders of the Israelite tribes come to him at his court in Judah in the city of Hebron, they offer three reasons for inviting him to become their ruler. First, they say, we are your own flesh and blood, relationship, and shared heritage. Now, this is not a terribly good reason for someone to be made king, since it would apply to any true Israelite. Second, they say, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. In other words, you were the one who acted like a king ought to act. And this is rather better reason for making, king, uh, making David to be the king. Though we might easily reduce it just to, you get to be the one on the throne because you're the best general. But their third reason is the real issue here. They say, The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. David's response could so easily have been, if you believe that the Lord called me to rule, why did you not come to me seven and a half years ago? Why did you anoint and follow Ish-bosheth? Why did you fight against me? But David holds his tongue. Actually, this declaration about David having been appointed by God is not really very generously worded. We have to wonder where it came from. It's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. They're right in the essentials that God called David and that his rule is to be like that of a shepherd, nurturing, guarding, guiding the people rather than lording it over them. But by using the words that they choose... The Lord said, you will shepherd my people, and particularly by putting them into the mouth of God. They're telling David exactly what kind of king they're willing to let him be, a shepherd, not a master. In fact, the word ruler at the end of their statement, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler, that's actually the word prince. They don't use the word king at all. And yet, David's response is not to correct them. Instead, it's to offer something that no other king would be willing to offer. Kings in the ancient world, in fact, most kings in history, ruling by divine right, had absolute power, no limits on their actions. But without being asked, David voluntarily offers the the elders of Israel a covenant a series of commitments about the the nature of his rule and their mutual responsibilities under it. And of course, the gracious covenant-making king is doing so because he is himself ruled by a covenant-making God. God did not need to make any kind of agreement with the human beings he created, but he makes a covenant with Noah and another with Abraham and another with Moses, and another with David, and finally, the new covenant 
announced by the prophet Jeremiah. And covenants are sealed in blood. That's why we talk about Jesus' death on the cross as the blood of the new covenant. This is sanctified consideration. God-drenched thinking on David's part. He knows this is what the Lord would have him do because he is doing exactly as God himself has already done. David's decision about the action he takes here, making a covenant with the elders of Israel, is a result of his reflection on the character and actions of God. And this is why Christians read the Bible. Its pages are not Christian tea leaves for divining immediate messages from the spiritual realm. We read the Bible so that it soaks our minds and fills up our thoughts with the ways of God, so that when the moment arises, we know how to act in step with the Holy Spirit. So there's the first way that we can know and do God's will, sanctified consideration, careful thought from a mind steeped in the words and actions of God. It's this same sanctified consideration that informs David's first act as king, the conquest of Jerusalem. Verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, the blind and lame will not enter the palace. This is one of the most difficult passages to translate in the whole book of Samuel. Different Bible commentators take wildly different views of how David conquered the city. Because the phrase that the NIV translates as the water shaft is very obscure. There's also a lot of debate about all of the references to the blind and the lame. So we need to take a step back and ask why God's word would be unclear about how David conquered Jerusalem. Well, one practical reason may be that if David had worked out a vulnerability to this seemingly impregnable city, he wouldn't want to advertise what this weakness was once Jerusalem had become his capital city. There was a spring outside Jerusalem. A channel had been cut so that water from the spring flowed under the rock that the city was built on. In a remarkable feat of engineering, a shaft had been dug through the rock at an angle so that those inside the city could lower a bucket into this channel safely collecting fresh water, even though the spring it came from was outside the city. And some commentators have suggested that David's men climbed up through this shaft and into the city. You can see that this explanation has influenced the translation of the story that we read. Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach David's enemies. But a much simpler and more likely tactic would surely be to cut off this water supply, forcing those in the city to surrender. And the lack of any mention of a battle here might also suggest that. But the point is we don't know. We can't say for sure. 
So maybe how David conquered Jerusalem isn't the point. I would suggest to you that David's choice of Jerusalem is far more important than how Jerusalem was taken. Jerusalem is such a shrewd choice. The city had been allotted to the tribe of Judah when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, but it had never been conquered. So it stood as a symbol of the nation's failure to fulfill the promise of God that they would inherit the whole land. It sat in the very center of the country, with the land of the tribes of Israel to the north and the land of the tribe of Judah to the south. In moving his capital from Hebron in Judah to Jerusalem in neutral territory, David was signaling his rule over the whole land and all of its people. And when he conquers it, Jerusalem becomes not part of Judah, but the city of David, his own possession. In some ways, a bit like Washington, D.C. stands separate from all the states of the U.S. And in verse 7, it's called for the first time, Zion. Now, initially, this simply refers to, to this conquered Jebusite town, but it came to mean the Temple Mount, the great city of Jerusalem that developed there, the people of God themselves, and ultimately, of course, the center of God's kingdom in the age to come. Here is the first time when anyone was able to claim the Lord reigns in Zion. There's no doubt that David making Jerusalem his city was God's will. But for David, it was sanctified consideration which led him to that conclusion. Jerusalem was a, a sign of the conquest of the land that the Lord would finally complete through David. It was neutral territory from which to rule all Israel. It was a strong fortress in a strategic position. There's no doubt in my mind that David knew what his first move on becoming king would be. He'd had years to think about it. When the moment arrived, he didn't have to pray a frantic prayer about what to do next. This was the fruit of long-term, sanctified, strategic planning. So David takes action in line with God's will first on the basis of sanctified consideration. Second, he takes action on the basis of spiritual confirmation. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. The Philistines have been the primary enemies of the people of Israel from the moment that they entered the Promised Land two centuries earlier. Again and again, they've defeated Israel's tribes in battle and kept large parts of their territory under their dominion. And during the period of the Judges, most of the leaders who the Lord raised up were called to resist the armies of the Philistines. King Saul's God-given purpose, though it was only ever partly realized, was to deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines. 
Now, the Philistines have always been quite smart. They knew that they didn't have the numbers to subdue and occupy all of Canaan. But they also knew that they did not need to. As long as their armies retained control of some key areas, trade routes, strongholds, and valleys, then they could largely enforce their will on the Israelites. The Valley of Rephaim is one such valley. It's particularly strategic because it cuts the northern tribes off from the southern tribes. Keeping the north and south from joining together is a a clear strategic advantage. So when they discover that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they pour into the valley of Rephaim. Now here's the interesting thing. The obvious action for David to take in response, the considered, rational, strategic thing to do, is for him to lead the Israelite army into battle. But David does not. Instead, he prays. He asks, shall I go? He asks, are you in this, Lord? He doesn't assume that the logical thing to do is the faithful thing to do. So he asks. I wonder how often we act without praying because we think that the action we should take is so obvious. Unexpected circumstances hit us And using our God-given rationality, we come up with solutions. But we put them into practice before we've asked for permission. There's a clear example of this in David's life just two chapters later in chapter 7. Once David is finally settled in his rule, he has a good and godly thought. Let's build a temple for the Lord. He shares this idea with the prophet Nathan, and Nathan initially gives him positive confirmation. It's clearly a good and worthy idea. But then the Lord reveals to Nathan that it is not David who is going to build a house for him, but rather God who is going to establish a house for David, a house that will endure forever, pointing, of course, to Jesus, David's descendant and successor, who will one day and forever after sit on the throne of the kingdom of heaven. The Lord's plan is so much greater than David's good idea. I wonder, when was the last time you prayed for permission to act in some way or another? When we ask for confirmation or permission from God, we're putting ourselves in a place of submission to his will. All too often we think we have it all sorted out and we don't want to delay. Of course it's a good idea. We certainly don't want to run the risk of the Lord telling us no when we already think we know how best to manage the challenge we're facing. In addition to sanctified consideration then, we need to develop the discipline of taking our best thoughts to the Lord for spiritual confirmation. And the single most important reason for this is that it changes whose battle we're fighting. When unexpected circumstances come our way, we can address them ourselves, but no matter how wise and spiritual we are in responding to them, it remains our challenge that we're responding to. When we take a possible course of action to the Lord, 
for confirmation, we're surrendering not only our actions to God, but also the situation itself. The outcome we're aiming for stops being what's best for us, what's best for me, and becomes what is God's will. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? asks David. Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands, replies the Lord. What began as David's challenge has been submitted to God, and now the battle is the Lord's. Of course, in reality, the battle always was the Lord's. We can see that at the end of the account when the Philistines are defeated and they abandon their idols, their gods. But by bringing his plan to the Lord, David's explicitly recognizing this. The battle is not his, it is the Lord's. Uh, To use another Washington, D.C. illustration, it's like the director of national intelligence submitting a plan for the president's confirmation. And the plan is still hers. She still has to carry it out, put the plan into practice, and oversee its execution. But from the moment the president gives his okay, the buck no longer stops with the intelligence chief, but with the president. In David's case and in our own, it is not simply that the Lord has given his confirmation, though. Verse 20 says, So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. See, when we ask for confirmation from God, it is not simply to confirm that we're planning the right action ourselves. Rather, we're asking permission to join God in what he's doing. By checking our plans, we're getting ourselves in line with God's plan so that we won't find ourselves stumbling all over the place and making more of a mess than was there in the first place. And prayers for spiritual confirmation are a declaration of commitment to cooperate with the Lord. And it's important that we recognize that the permission we're looking for will not always be forthcoming. Verse 22. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Acting in line with God's will may involve sanctified consideration, it may involve spiritual confirmation, but occasionally it will also involve the Lord's specific command. And this alerts us to a particular danger when it comes to seeking God's guidance. And that's the assumption that because the Lord has blessed a certain course of action in the past, he will always bless that course of action on every future occasion. The Bible tells us about God's ways with us by telling us about his dealings with Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, 
Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, Saul and David, John and James and Peter, Paul and Barnabas, Silas and Timothy and Titus, and on and on and on. The fact that the Bible tells us about God's ways with us by telling us about his different dealings with all of these people should be enough to show us that we cannot safely predict what the living God will do. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In what appears to be exactly the same circumstances as before, with the Philistines again massing their troops in the Valley of Rephaim, David does not make the mistake of simply doing exactly as he did before. He makes no assumptions, but inquires of the Lord once again. And this time he receives a completely different response. When you do this, pressure will be put on you by others. You see, they feel as if you're implicitly criticizing them, as if you're claiming to be more spiritual than them because you want to pray when they've already decided what to do. Well, the fact is you are. Don't be compelled to hasty action when you know that prayer for direction is needed first. For many years, I had only two quotations on my desk. The oldest of these by Samuel Chadwick reads, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Never be ashamed of taking the proper time to pray. Of course, we mustn't use prayer as a tool for procrastinating when the situation's urgent. But what could be more urgent than the invasion of the land? And what could be more obvious than to repeat that which has been successful against this so recently? And yet David prayed. In response on this occasion, the Lord gives him specific instructions Verse 23, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. Again, notice the battle is the Lord's. David's role is to cooperate with what God is doing. How exciting! when we get detailed instructions from the Lord. How exciting to hear from the Lord exactly how things will unfold and then see that come to pass in front of your own eyes. How affirming, how faith-building to know that you are acting in concert with the living God. When Helen and I were first married, we joined a Baptist church in the small town that we'd moved to. And after a while, I was asked to serve as an elder I was 23, so I didn't really feel like an elder, but I'd had five years working in various churches by that point. 
After a couple of years, Helen and I went to a Bible week, uh, Bible preaching in the morning and the evening and seminars all through the day. Well, whenever I went to an event like that, I would always go to absolutely everything. But one afternoon, I just sensed the need not to go to anything, but to spend the time in prayer instead. And as I began to pray, the Lord began to speak to me. So I took a sheet of paper and I wrote down all of what I thought the Lord was saying. And I filled a whole page. And when I'd finished, three things really stood out. First, the Lord said to me that the pastor of our church was soon going to step down and that I would serve the church in his place. Second, I was to preach through the life of David. And when I finished, my time at that church would be at an end. And then third, uh, we would plant a church. A couple of months later, indeed, the pastor of the church announced he was resigning. And the church asked if I would serve in his place. It wasn't a large church, but over the next three years, we saw it grow from uh, about 85 to around 135 people. And I did preach for the first time through the life of David over about three years. Not straight through like we're doing, but in series alongside lots of other things. And then just as I was finishing, the Lord called Helen and I to move to Canada. In that church, there was a wonderful pastoral couple. Uh, They were from a brethren background, and um, the husband would never say anything like, the Lord has said to me. So one night, some months before we left, he called me up, And he said, the Lord has said to me that we're to plant a church. I think he was expecting me to say, that's an interesting thought. Uh, We'll have to talk about it and pray about it. So I think he was rather surprised when I said, I know. And I got to tell him how I knew. And for him, having stepped out in faith in that way, that was the most extraordinary confirmation. And we did. Small as we were as a church, we planted a church in a nearby town, among people living with addictions, mental illness, and living in the most terrible poverty. And 20 odd years later, against all the odds, that church is still there. And it's led by his daughter and his son-in-law who planted it. Now that's a unique experience in my life, that kind of level of detail from the Lord. But we have to be open to receiving specific commands from the Lord on those occasions when they're necessary. When that happens, it's it's such an encouraging thing. There's such such a strong sense that you and the Lord are in this together. You alone have some small part of God's plan. So, three ways to determine how to act in line with God's will. Sanctified consideration, spiritual confirmation, and specific command. And the result of these three is always the same. The Lord's will is done, and your faith grows. Or to put it in the terms that this passage uses, you are more firmly established in the role the Lord has called you to. Will you pray with me? Let's take a moment in quiet and and just respond to what the Lord has said to us through this passage today.
Father, it's your plans and purposes that matter to us and not ours. In your grace, we're privileged sometimes to receive particular instructions. Sometimes to receive your confirmation that we should take one action rather than another. But most of all, Lord, we're privileged through the work of your Holy Spirit to develop the mind of Christ. For you to take the gift of, of rational thought that you've given us and to open our minds to your own thoughts, your own view of the world. Help us, Lord, to continue to soak ourselves in your words and actions in the scriptures that we might know your ways better and so act as you would have us act each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.